Our assessments of injury risk out in the field are incredibly weak. So the consequence of that is that you have to embrace uncertainty. You just, you, there's no other choice. You have to embrace the uncertainty in the pursuit of sporting excellence. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. And if you're one of our six listeners who enjoy the show, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible. In fact, pause this right now, scroll down, click that five stars, give us a nice review. Boom. Duty to Clinical Athlete fulfilled. To learn more about Clinical Athlete, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com, and join the free Kalu Community Facebook group where Clinical Athlete and the Level Up Initiatives have combined to form an amazing group with several different types of learning opportunities. You can join the Calu Community Facebook group by clicking the link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by co-hosts Jared Maynard and John Flagg. Jared is a clinical athlete provider and physiotherapist in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, and an online powerlifting coach. John is a clinical athlete provider and certified athletic trainer and online powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach and the lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. This is part two of our science to practice episode with PhD candidate and researcher Judd Kalkoven talking all about injuries and the modeling of injuries. So if you haven't listened to part one, hit the brakes, go back and listen to that first. And remember, our science and practice episodes are where we dig into the weeds of the research a little bit. We always try to bring it back to practicality, but these types of episodes can and will get technical. So if you like digging deep into the sciencey stuff, this show is for you. With that said, we hope you enjoy the second half of our conversation with Judd Kalkoven. Okay, a couple paradoxes here that I think you, you talked about in your paper. The idea that if we do too much, we surpass the tissue's ability to adapt, to recover and adapt. If we do too little, it's a don't use it, you lose it scenario where we have negative adaptive changes and those resources are allocated to something else that the body thinks that we care about since we're not using that particular tissue. Do you think future research, I know we don't have the question now, but do you think future, future research will be able to identify certain thresholds um, with particular metrics that will be applicable to, the, to a clinician or a practitioner where we'll be able to dose our training a little bit more on an individual level with a little bit more certainty? Yeah. Uh, my, my answer is yes, but I don't want to go into it just yet because it will fit really well after we talk about training load. Because when I talk about the methods to estimate cumulative damage in, in training load, and, and we'll get, I think we'll get onto that next, you can apply those same methods to try and model the, the potential adaptation that can occur. And, and we could potentially 
potentially, and when I, when I talk about training load, you'll see why I'm saying potentially at a later date, be able to, to I guess, predict the adaptation as per the stresses apl applied on, on various tissues. Um, but yeah, I think let's, I'll, I'll get back to this after I've, I've spoken about training load a little bit. Well, let's go there now. Um, we're using metrics of cumulative load to try to work as, as a measure of training load and then as a proxy of injury risk, or even, you know, potentially just saying, no, it's a proxy for performance enhancement if we can, uh, you know, measure this cumulative load. What's, what, what are some of the fundamental flaws with that so that we can kind of start anew? Okay, awesome. So yeah, this is really the, the crux of the paper. So the term training load, right, is just a generic term that doesn't actually describe a specific physical quantity, right? There's many types of things that constitute training load. So this can be your GPS data, this can be RPE, this can be your mechanical loads, which are, are far more relevant, but I'll, I'll get to that, that later, right? So my problem with the term training load actually is that it makes many of these metrics sound substantially more important and valuable than they are. And the GPS, right, I would preferably term that spatiotemporal load, right, because it's measuring spatiotemporal variables. And spatiotemporal load is not causally related to injury except through very unreliable relationships with mechanical loading and potentially neuromuscular fatigue, right? Uh, but it does not measure either of those things and, and not even close. So the, the problem with load, training load, is what are we actually measuring and is it relevant to the phenomenon that we're trying to relate it to, right? So with your question of, of cumulative load, right, when I think of cumulative load, I think of cumulative mechanical loads. So what I mean by that is the, the force experienced by, by a tissue and the number of loading cycles that it will experience, right? And that's the accumulation of mechanical loads, right? That's what is particularly relevant to, to injury. Now, cumulative load, if it's spatiotemporal load, right, you can accumulate spatiotemporal load. That's extremely unreliable re regarding injury. So I wanna, I wanna explain this with examples so, so that the listeners can, can really understand, understand why. So let's use the tibia when running uh, like a marathon runner, right? And we wanna be able to determine when is this athlete gonna, gonna uh, have stress fractures and when, you know, how, how well can we make this decision to pull back on the load and, and stop them getting stress fractures, right? So a very recent approach by, by uh, a group, it's, it's Emily Matijevic and, and Carl Zillick. Uh, they did by far the best approach I've ever seen regarding training load and injury, way superior to anything that's been done before. And what they did was they used multiple wearable sensors. So a combination of accelerometers, pressure sensors, uh, as well as biomechanics and machine learning to try produce targeted estimates of the tibial load that's experienced, right? So with that entire setup, with their first approach, they had an error of 9.9%, right? When we're trying to get, get the load. Now, the issue is that the problem we're trying to solve is not the load, 
It's the cumulative damage. We just need to accurately determine the load so that we can accurately estimate the cumulative damage, right? The problem is the 9.9% error resulted in over 100% error when trying to estimate cumulative load, uh, sorry, cumulative damage. So this is a highly targeted approach with multiple wearable sensors that produces an error of over 100%, right? A GPS unit, just if, like as an experiment to anyone listening, if you get up and jump around, do some side steps, hit the floor, get up, you haven't quantified anything. You don't know any forces. You don't know any tissue characteristics. If you try to estimate the cumulative damage, what's the error? 600%? Like, it could be anything. It's like the equivalent. I guess I'll, I'll give an example of the equivalent. It's like going into a gym and you bench press 140 kilos, right? And, and your coach turns to you and goes, you know, great lift, awesome bench press. I measure that you bench press somewhere between 30 kilos and 350 kilos, and I have no idea which one, right? You, it's not possible to, to act on this information. And especially in training load, where acting on this information has substantial negative consequences for the athletes, right? And what I mean by that is that if you pull an athlete load, that means you're either taking them out of training or you're taking them out of match play, right? And you actually have the data and the accuracy of data to make that decision on a data-driven approach. And the answer is not, not even close. Not even close can you make that decision, right? Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't manage training loads. Like if a, the way I would use this is, is far more simply, right? Not data-driven. If a, if a player came up to me and was like, Judd, you flogged me for a month. I'm exhausted. And I go and look at his loads and, yep, he's run, you know, very high spatio-temporal loads. I'd be like, okay, he is wrecked. I have pushed him really hard spatio-temporally. I think that's a decent framework to say I'll, I'll give this guy a rest, right? But that's a, that's a, a data-informed decision where I'm taking multiple factors and, and I'm making this, the decision, opposed to a computer spitting out numbers and saying, now I should pull him out, now I shouldn't. So... The best approach that we could do, so with, with what, what Emily Matijevic and, and Carl Zillick did was they then improved this method, right? And they created a new algorithm and, and they got substantially better estimates of, of uh, mechanical load. I think it was two point something percent, right? And this resulted in like a, I think 11, I might be saying random numbers here, but it was much lower, 11% error when trying to estimate the cumulative damage, right? So an approach like that like 11% relatively high, but we're getting somewhere now, right? So if we can accurately estimate the cumulative tissue damage experienced by a tissue, that means that we can make highly informed, accurate decisions on when to pull that, that player or, or that runner, right? The only problem here is that it's really specific to, to certain tissues. Like muscles got a hell of a lot of additional complexity and that it can acutely regulate its mechanical properties just through muscle activation. So for me, I, I really want to see this problem solved in bone. So, so the marathon running or, or runners and, and stress fractures in the shin really interest me because I actually think it's achievable that, that we might actually create something that can be very accurate when, it, when estimating the damage. And then we can use that for, for our decision-making regarding regarding training loads. Uh, I want to apply the same approach, uh, a similar approach to cricketers and fast bowlers. So 
I know, I know you guys are based in America, but I guess closest thing to cricket is, is baseball. If, if you're not familiar with cricket and you, and you get like a pitcher, you get a, a bowler, right? And they bowl the ball and these guys get, get loads of stress fractures in the spine. So if we can accurately estimate the cumulative damage that occurs in the, in the, in the spine, you know, then we can make decisions on when to pull the load of, of these players. Um, that's, that's the way we need to go. Now, for us to get this very accurate, the challenges are immense. And I'll give you some examples to explain this. So in engineering, right, if you have two pieces of, of metal, let's say, let's say it's iron, and they are identical, right? The same size, the same shape, uh, maybe even from the same mold, right? They will still fail at different points. And the reason being is that certain factors like molecular orientation, so literally the orientation of molecules can result in massive differences in the, in the material strength and the fatigue strength of these, of these structures. And uh, okay, the, the molecular orientation is heavily influenced by the molding process, but it's still a factor in tissue because it's something that's influenced by our tissue growth and how our, how our tissue has adapted over time will, will impact molecular orientation and microvoids. So what engineers usually do is they determine a range from which it would fail, right? And then they assess the probability of failure as your, as your stresses start to, to start to enter that range, right? Um, which I think is, is the approach that we should take to, to gradual onset injuries in elite sport. Um, so still a lot of innovation to go, but I think there's a lot of potential with recent research. And I think uh, the main point of my, my paper on training load was really to highlight how off the mark current approaches are. We're literally, our, I think our error could be in the hundreds for making these decisions. And it's very big negative consequences to it, but also to provide direction, right? So show the approach from an engineering perspective. And, and luckily I had, you know, Emily Matijevic's work to, to point towards and say, you know, this, this is the way, like this is far superior and we can produce something that, that could really make a big dent in, in load management and, and, and injury, injury management that, that, you know, I think, I think could, could really be something that's, that's extraordinary. I mean, if we could solve, if we could, you know, largely solve one type of injury in one context, I think that is a, a massive achievement. We're talking about modeling dynamical systems though, right? Because you, you're taking into account that person's adaptive. So not only the differences from just an, an engineering, like inert tissue molecular uh, orientation standpoint, but also their genetic predisposition to adapt favorably or not slower or faster um, responding to a certain type of training that they're doing off the field. So, so the challenge, the challenge is that you're spot on. The challenge is that we really need to know as well to, to get it even better is to know the fatigue strength of the tissue and the mechanical loads. And that would be like ideal scenario, but, but, the strength of a, of a tissue, as I mentioned, is extremely complex and, and it involves even like bone. It's, it's to do with things like um, the, the inorganic to organic material ratio, like the crystallinity. Like there's factors that are, are very complex that, that, um, that contribute to this. So it's actually a, it's, it's a very, very hard problem to solve. I still think if we can accurately determine the mechanical loads, right, 
I think we could do something very useful, even if we don't really have a thorough assessment of, of the tissue characteristics. But you're, you're right, additional consideration is then how do we also factor in the physiological response to these mechanical loads? Like that's, that's another component, right? But the thing is, people need to realize that this adds to the complexity. It doesn't mean you can do a simple approach with GPS. What it means is we need to solve the mechanical part of the equation and then solve the physiological part of the equation and, and, and do this, right? For now, solving the mechanical loads, I think will open up so many pathways. I mean, mechanical loads is a stimulus for damage. It's the stimulus for adaptation, right? You either get damage and that, and that causes physiological adaptation or alternatively, it's just mechanotransduction, mechanical signaling that stimulates physiological pathways. And potentially, if we know the magnitude of the loads, there could be ways that we can you know, estimate the physiological response or, or whatever. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of work to do, but I mean, compared to, compared to trying to use a GPS unit, right. To, to do gradual onset injuries, like it's, yeah, I think there's, it highlights just how far off the mark it, it actually is really. What do you say to the clinician who, who laughs at, Oh, uh, you, you know, we talk about how, um, how unreliable or the data from GPS isn't, isn't really telling us what we, we think it's telling us, but the clinician who laughs and says, oh, I wish I had a GPS. I have session RPE. And I know, you know, coming from uh, the team with Franco, uh, somebody who, who brought things like session RPE and these proxies for, for uh, internal psychophysiological load to the forefront of sports science, thank goodness. But what, you know, when it comes to when the rubber meets the road and, and we're dealing with our team and we just want to have our thumb on the pulse at all, just something like a session RPE what would you say to the clinician who's maybe just using that? Like, are those types of things meaningful? And is the message just, yeah, they are. Just don't try to put it into some arbitrary ratio or try to make this elaborate threshold and cutoff because we're not there. Just use it as a general. Uh, okay. I, I would, this is what I'd recommend. I would say be heavily biased towards performance, right? From an injury risk perspective, the training load data is completely unreliable. Like you, you don't know when to pull players based on this data. What I would say is be heavily biased towards performance, uh, but also manage the individual, right? If a player is wrecked and he's looking very fatigued and his spatiotemporal loads are high, you know, give him a rest. Like you can, you can manage the player. Um, it's just don't, don't think that we can produce a data-driven approach where computer says you got to go off. So you're going off. Like that's very much what I wanted to, to steer away from and just understand that our, our assessments of injury risk out in the field are incredibly weak, right? Incredibly weak. Um, so the consequence of that is that you have to embrace uncertainty. You just, you, there's no other choice. You have to embrace the uncertainty in the pursuit of sporting excellence. Because unfortunately, there, there is just, for all the mentions I reason, I've, I've, sorry, all the reasons I mentioned, um, it's a very, very complex problem, very complex problem. And, and although the approaches now are, are close to solving it, I think the applied research has been way, way off the mark. Um, yeah. Uh, I, no, I, actually, I love that answer because I think it takes some pressure off of us who think that we're missing the boat with all this training load uh data that's been coming out over the past five years which well, 
Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. I think Franco and I have spoken about is I think often staff at sporting teams can be used as scapegoats when, when there's a lot of injuries. And, and I think this is, well, I, I think it's very wrong because I think the nature of the game is that there is so much uncertainty regarding injury that these things are, can often be random. And, and especially with the data we have, we just don't have the data necessary to make highly detailed decisions, right? And that's why I say embrace uncertainty, but this also means that the whole organization needs to embrace the uncertainty and accept that players are going to get injured because we don't have the data to make these decisions. So it actually, I think it should take some pressure off individuals that, that you know, when, when some things do happen, you know, maybe they did do everything right, right? It's just, it's a hard complex problem to to know to make a, a highly detailed decision along that same aim, uh, aim these types of injuries that we're talking about especially over the past several years with the training load uh literature that's coming out the term training load error has become more common and i think that puts more pressure on the practitioner because they're writing the programs a lot of the times and say oh shit you know they have uh, tendinopathy now. That's a training load error. Well, who wrote the damn training program? Me. So, so you literally wrote a viewpoint, or you wrote a viewpoint that's literally titled "Training Load Error Is Not More Accurate Than the Term Than Overuse Injury." So, why is that the case? Why is training load error not adding benefit to this conversation as a whole? Okay, because training load, especially at that point that the the article was written really constituted spatio-temporal load and like RPE and people weren't even talking about the mechanical loads. So it was rubbish. It was just like an incredibly bad risk factor <laughs> for, for managing these injuries. And there was just so much emphasis put on it. I think people just became obsessed with training loads and trying to find the best way to manage this dot, like find a way, if I can just find the way to analyze this data correctly, you know, it's the golden ticket. And, and not realizing that the, con the conceptual um, underpinnings of this entire area <laughs> made no sense. Like, they, it just couldn't work. It just couldn't work, right? Um, so the paper was really a, a counter-narrative because of what you mentioned, that it shouldn't be called a, a training load error. Just like if there's a surgical complication, and we gave this example, you know, to call it a surgery error is very, very harsh on a surgeon if there's some random complication, right? It's, it's so multifactorial and to put so much emphasis on one factor and to put it as a mismanagement, you know, is, is really, really tough on, on practitioners. Um, so I, I was really an aim to just make people think about the multifactorial nature of these injuries and the fact that training load, right, which included these rubbish metrics, right just wasn't that much of a relevant factor like the mechanical loads are but but yeah the generic training load metrics weren't they're completely unreliable hey guys quinn hennick here consider this a little brain break from our great conversation with judd about injuries if you're looking for a community to share these conversations with look no further than the kalu community facebook group where we have so many opportunities for discussion, learning, networking, and more. Click the link in the show notes and join the group. It is free. And now, back to the show. Everything we've discussed so far is really 
gradual onset injuries. So where the cumulative mechanical loads result in cumulative damage, and that's relevant to the injury. In terms of uh, traumatic injury, right, the other pathway we talk about is the psychophysiological pathway, right? And this is sort of along the lines of you become fatigued, right? And because you're fatigued, now there's some alteration occurring. Maybe your your muscle functions impaired, uh, your gait changes, your muscles are worse at, at generating force. And this leads to an injury like a hamstring. Fatigue can contribute to, to muscle injuries. I think that's a reasonable assumption because it impairs the function. The force generation is lower. Um, you know, there, there are potential causal explanations for that. But the other consideration is that many hamstring injuries happen independent of fatigue. And a good example is within five meters of a hundred meter sprint. I've seen many elite athletes tear their hamstring. Like that's the cumulative load was not relevant to that event, right? It's not like you've cu accumulated loading and load cycles and this is fatigued and, and damaged it and then it ruptured. Like it was just a one-off traumatic event, right? Um, so many traumatic injuries are, are actually independent of, of fatigue. A good example is, is the literature recently on ACL injuries. So I think that, like in 2020, there was four papers that came out and immediately said the majority of ACL injuries happen in the first half, right? And the explanation is that when you're not fatigued, your forces are higher, right? So every time you sidestep, you've got way higher forces. But also as you fatigue, your biomechanics change where you get an increase in, in flexion at the, at the knee and hip, which actually reduces loading on the ACL. So it looks like fatigue might actually be protective to some injuries and a contributing causal factor to other injuries. So, and then just to compound all of this, none of these training load metrics actually measure fatigue. So they're not reliable indicators of fatigue. So even though fatigue might be related, none of these measures actually measure fatigue either. Like any fatigue response to a given spatiotemporal load is completely individualized. Like if I run five kilometers, I'm unfit. So I'll be heavily fatigued if, you know, any of the, the star athletes and, you know, whatever sports, soccer, you know, they can run 11 kilometers and they're fine, right? So, yeah, it's not, it's not even measuring fatigue. I just want to say that I can tell that you work with Franco because I feel right now the same way that I did last time we talked to him in that my brain is kind of melting and is in a pool on the floor. So yeah, just, sorry, sorry if I talk. No, I, it's I great. I love it. Um, I'll, I'll talk one more. Another thing here is that all the studies on training load are predominantly descriptive research, right? And they produce associations. And one of the key things that are commonly reiterated is that causation, association is not causation, right? And there's this interesting thing where cumulative load, right? I talk about this in the paper, is accumulated over time, right? And if you increase the exposure time to a given activity, right, your risk of injury increases. So like, let's say you're, you play 20 minutes of a soccer match. If you play 30 minutes, your risk is going to be higher because it's 20 minutes, the same 20 minutes plus an additional 10 minutes of exposure, right? That also gives 10 minutes for the cumulative load to accumulate, right? So, the, so let's say the injury is someone slide tackles and snaps your leg. While the risk is increasing with the time exposure, the cumulative load is increasing with the time exposure. So now I get an association between heightened cumulative loads and an increased injury risk, but it's not causal, 
the cumulative load is not causal to someone just running in and slide tackling and breaking my leg. Alternatively, so that's a little bit of a, a weak argument because risk, you should really keep the time, right, uh, restricted when you do a comparison, right? So let's say you assess risk in, uh, per whatever time interval, right? Let's say you do walking in a soccer match. So one player walks for 20 minutes and one player sprints for 20 minutes, right? In this scenario, the guy that sprints, we'd all agree, has a higher hamstring injury risk because he's sprinting. Sprinting will also produce higher cumulative loads, right? Because you're, you're running faster and you're running for 20, <laughs> yeah, 20 minutes, right? So again, now you've got an increased hamstring injury risk. But that hamstring injury could just be a one-off traumatic event whereby there's a neuromechanical misfire of the hamstring muscle. And what I'm saying is, was the cumulative load, even though there's an association causal, so was the loading and the repetitive load cycles causal to the hamstring event? And the answer is we don't know. It could be sometimes, it could not be. So here we're getting associations with heightened training load that are non-causal which means that you can't act on them and manipulating the load just means you're manipulating the exposure time to reduce, reduce the risk, right? So the whole, the whole foundations of what has been done in training load, you know, is, is really off the mark. And the problem is, is the, the consequences of, of implementing these strategies is that you're pulling players out of training and matches and reducing their load when you shouldn't have been. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a big problem actually. If we bring it home to the clinicians that are, you know, whether they're interested in the theoretical modeling, uh, now into the future or not, do you think there are some heuristics, even if it's just, you know, from the framework itself and, and from the model itself, even from the paper that they can use, even if it's just from a mental a mental framework standpoint as, as they're dealing with athletes on the day-to-day. -day. You mentioned one could be focus on performance enhancement and a lot of things tend to fall into place. Would you say there's, there's other uh, rules of thumb in that regard as well? I'll, I'll give a couple, I'll give a couple here, right? So in terms of performance, you should always set your performance goals first, right? And this sets the paradigm for which your injury risk mitigation strategy must function. So if your strategy contradicts these goals, these developmental training performance goals, it's an invalid strategy because the most important thing for athletes is that they win, especially at the elite level, right? If you're, if you're gunning for gold and you implement an injury risk <laughs> mitigation strategy that's going to detrain the athletes a little bit, like restricting loads, and they miss out on gold because of that, it's a, it's a, uh, like it's it's an incorrect strategy. You should prioritize the performance. So the the question is is how do we create strategies that help athletes meet their goals? Now this is this very much goes into risk reward, right? So it's possible that high highly ambitious athletes will have to take on more risk, right? Because they you know they're gunning for gold, and that's a risk reward. It depends on the goals, and, and that's for each individual and organization to, to make for themselves. But that sets the paradigm for which your injury risk mitigation strategy uh, must, of course, function. In terms of using the framework, right, I think the key thing here is that mechanic, there's, a, there's a really complex interplay between mechanical loads and, and tissue resilience. 
and, and strength, whereby athletes that are exposed to high mechanical loads will develop greater tissue strength, right? It's, it's, they, they adapt simultaneously. It's a, it's a protective mechanism against the heightened mechanical loads with the adaptation, right? So this is, this is quite complex where, you know, some of the strategies, and I mentioned this with explosive players that have superior tissue characteristics can still have a high injury risk, right? Um, so you need to be very careful of descriptive research where the causal inferences might actually be suggesting that you detrain your athletes. And one of my concerns with this is, is strategies that say decrease stiffness to, to improve injury risk when stiffness, heightened stiffness, is positively correlated with the mechanical strength of almost every tissue, right? Like bodybuilders, powerlifters have ridiculously high stiffness, as do sprinters, because the mechanical loads they're exposed to are so high. So that, but it's the mechanical loads that that results in, you know, uh, an injury risk or a key con contributor. So uh, I know this makes um, interpretation very, very dangerous, and you really need a, a detailed knowledge to, to really make causal inferences. But this is what the, the framework does, right? This is why frameworks are so important, is that it allows you to map out these causal pathways and then make, make inferences. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say just be very careful at suggestions that either contradict your performance goals or your training goals or whatever, uh, that's very important. And then potential strategies that might inadvertently be suggesting to, to detrain your athlete or restrict what they're doing to reduce the injury risk, which of course is, is going against their, their training training goals. So you just got to be got to be very cautious of causal inferences from descriptive research. Can't go wrong getting strong. That's what John always says. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where I don't really see a downside to getting stronger. Like that's a that's a decent strategy because you know it's not really a downside if if you're stronger, but the strategies that are cutting load, well, there's a, there's a big downside to that. So that's something that if you're going to cut load, you've got to, you've got to have a really good decision-making framework for as to why you're, you're restricting, restricting load. Um, but yeah, embra embrace the uncertainty a lot of the time. God damn it. So, <laughs> so what's next, Judd, for you, as far as, as far as work and then anything, yeah. Okay. Um, quite a few things. I'm, I'm sitting on like six or seven papers at the moment that I want to publish. Um, like right, like got, right now. Yeah. They, they, they're, they're underneath um, you. So I'll explain what I, I'm, I've released a lot of conceptual works lately. So Franco wants me to release my applied research before I release more conceptual works. And I'm sitting on like four conceptual works, some of which I actually think are better than the two I've released. So I'm excited for them, but I promised them I'd release the applied research. So I've got, I've got research on muscle architecture and muscle stiffness and professional rugby union and, and Australian rules football players uh, that I want to release. Uh, from that, I'm working on a highly detailed two-part strategy for injury risk mitigation. Um, I'm also working on a very detailed conceptual exploration of hamstring function while sprinting. Um, those are sort of the main, the main projects that I'll be working on for the next few months. And then, and then I'll, I'll be teaching biomechanics at, at UTS this year. So yeah, that's the, that's the goals for the, for the near future.
you said there was a piece on complex systems too, didn't you? Well, we were talking earlier. Yeah, the, the strategy paper part part one is all about causal inferences and, and frameworks, and part two really outlines the complex system of, of injury in, in a lot of detail. Um, it's, it's still generic, but I think it gives a very strong platform for people to create highly specific frameworks for specific injuries within specific sporting contexts, which is where I want to see the literature go. I want there to be a highly detailed framework for ACL injury in soccer, right? For elbow tendinopathy in baseball or whatever, right? That's, that's where the research needs to go. Instead of these generic approaches that just lump all injuries together, we need highly, highly focused um, frameworks for specific injuries. Uh, and then I think we can apply some really great models into the applied world from that. Awesome. Um, where can people connect with you? I've got one, sorry, I've got one more thing that I'm working oh, on. Oh, please. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thing I want to do is uh, see if I can, S so I'm, I'm working with a, we've got a new PhD student. It's a really prominent physiotherapist called Patrick Farhart. I don't know if you know him. He's a, he's really big in cricket. Um, but, but we want to work on, on looking at, at looking at the spine and in fast bowlers, as I mentioned, and, and trying to, trying to model the, the damage in, in them and see if, you know, we can do something really, really great there. Um, sorry, in terms of your, your question, where can people connect with me? Uh, Twitter, I, I got Twitter, uh, my email. So just judd.kalkoven, uh, at uts.edu.au. Please feel free to send me an email. Um, it's probably, probably the two easiest ways, uh, if you want to connect with me. Awesome. John, where can people connect with you? John.RebuildStronger on Instagram. It's pretty much the place I'm the most active. Um, if you do want to email me, it's John at Clinical Athlete. Judd, that was awesome, dude. I, I got to say, like, I'm with Jared. We've, we've talked to Franco a couple times. I've messaged Franco. Every time I message him, my brain melts just a little bit more. Um, I'm a big eater, and you've given me a lot to chew on tonight. This is a really, really good information here. Yeah, I hope it wasn't exhausting. I know I can I can talk a lot and it's quite technical, a lot of the stuff. So I'm, I'm glad you guys seem to enjoy it. Uh, I hope the viewers did too. I think so. If we lose a viewer, we're down to five. We'll pick up one <laughs> along the way. It's not a big deal. Jared, where can people connect with you? Yeah, Instagram is probably the easiest. Jared.UnbreakableStrength. Um, and then Jared at clinicalathlete.com. And just to finally echo it, yeah, Judd, no, definitely wasn't too much. This is awesome. And as we went through that conversation, I was just reflecting on how, <clears throat> how, how bene beneficial even seems like the wrong word, but um, how I've really enjoyed being able to look at or to try to look at these topics through the lens that, that you're looking at them. Um, I can only see that being a beneficial thing for me personally, as a clinician, as a coach, and just person in general. Plus, I think it's, it's the way forward for us collectively working with different populations, but working with people to try to serve them better. Um, and it seems like our listeners tend to dig that too. At the very least, it'll be a really good discussion. So thanks, man. This is awesome. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Second, third, and fourth on, on my end. This was an awesome conversation. I'll have to get you back on 
when you start yeah. pumping out more work and when, when uh, Franco finally lets you drop the other, some of the other <laughs> conceptual stuff, he just, he's, was he doing protecting you from the Twitter, giving you a Twitter shield by yeah, putting out he, some applied work? Protecting me because I've, he doesn't want me to be too embarrassed where I have all this conceptual work and not much applied work. And then I'm, I'm, that might open me up to criticism or, or something. So yeah, he is, he is trying to look after me. I, I understand why. I understand why. So he knows how to yeah. play the game. Yeah, he does. He does. He's a, he's a great dude. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. Thanks again for being on John Jarrett. Thanks again, as always, uh, for uh, steering the ship alongside me, as they say, and we'll see you guys next time. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Cheers. One last thank you to Judd Kalkoven for the great information and conversation. You can check out the show notes for ways to connect with Judd and follow his work. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg, for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And one more time, go to the link in the show notes, join the Kalu Community Facebook group, read the pinned announcement, introduce yourself, read the resources that we've compiled for you with the Kalu mission and some Kalu starter pack materials, and let's get our brain gains on. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.